justify prove to be right or reasonable justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument but at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification justify a podcast on law and politics in india from the vidhi center for legal policy hosted by orgo sen gupta welcome to episode 9 of season 2 of justify the union budget 2021 has just come out and perhaps we could alternatively have titled it the union infrastructure budget it allocated 34.5% more than last year to infrastructure development that's a whopping amount 20000 crores has been set up to capitalize a development financial institution which will act as an enabler provider and catalyst for infrastructure a 5 lakh crore lending portfolio is going to be created the budget has also allocated more than 1 lakh 18000 crore for the ministry of road transport and highways with a bulk of that being allocated for capital expenditure a similar amount has been allocated to the railways for electrification of broad gauge routes port infrastructure has not been left behind either as a result of all this the fiscal deficit has been estimated at an equally whopping 9.5% in financial year 21 as opposed to the previous target of 3.5% as per the FRBM act with tax rates largely remaining stable and no new taxes being added will the government strategic move to spend its way out of a crisis by building public infrastructure work what changes in law will be needed to back up these reforms and a subject that lawyers have noted keenly the abolition of five tribunals and vesting their functions in the high courts is this the end of the road for tribunalization of justice delivery to discuss these and more we have joint managing partner of jsa law and a leading expert on infrastructure and regulatory laws in india amit kapoor amit welcome to justify thanks argo pleasure being here so overall amit you're a close watcher of the economy in action particularly in all the disputes that you handle what is your overall sense on how the budget has done i think uh, uh, the budget in terms of giving a directional indication and on expenditure particularly has done a fair bit to try and encourage investments but uh, it will depend on how they go ahead and implement it you know one of the key facets and and you laid out some of those but uh, some of the implementation facets that have been laid out are uh, how quickly are you going to monetize uh, the assets and the land banks including the inbits that are expected out of the transmission lines and the highways and roads uh, the second big uh, test will be the disinvestment and i think that is going to be challenging uh, the third is uh, structural reforms because uh, in all the sectors that we have and particularly some of the subsidies don't get captured in the budget directly like the power sector subsidies uh, you will need to ultimately see how quickly is the tap being shut down because right now we are pumping a lot of water in a leaking bucket and we have not really plugged the hole uh, today it is estimated that uh, around 50 to uh, 60% of the nps maybe 70% of the nps of the country are directly indirectly linked to infrastructure in the country so there is a need for us to work very carefully and uh, my concern is primarily on how quickly and how effectively are the reforms going to get implemented on the structural side of things you make a very interesting point because we hear in india all the time that we have good laws and policies it's just the implementation where we constantly hit a roadblock so let's talk a little bit uh, specifically given that you gave the example of the power sector 
and and you said that there is still a large amount of subsidies which don't make it to the budget so what kind of structural reforms do you have in mind which are necessary to ensure that the budget is complemented so let's step back for a moment and see that what is it that the national infrastructure pipeline and which is that the emphasis is is actually driven by the national infrastructure pipeline is driven by the current thinking that around 80% 79% will be of the capex will be funded by the state and the central government and 21% will come from private so that's why i said that the means of finance from the government whether state or center because fine we have announced 5.54 lakh crores but we are talking of 111 lakh crores you divided by 5 straight back of the envelope you're still talking about some 22 to 23 lakh crores a year 5.4 doesn't make the gap for 22 and even if you take 20% out 80% of 22 is still 17 18 lakh crores so where do you bridge the gap from 5.54 to 17 18 that's where one of the big challenges will be the second when you are going to induce private sector investment and i do appreciate that uh, the feeling of the government is at the back of the uh, demand and the need for investment if this is able to put the right uh, incentives in play and also the right sentiment investments from the private sector will come back in but you need to deal with a couple of issues so since we are talking power power sector even in the pre reform era i mean the era which is talked about before electricity act was predicated on one and a half to two months of working capital requirement today just because of the non payment or delayed payment of dues by states and state enterprises today there is around 11 months of working capital need who bridges the nine nine and a half months of working capital requirement and if you already are looking at 11 and we are uh, after all building out of a serious covid crisis the estimates of the slowdown uh, particularly where the uh, unorganized sector estimates are ultimately just guesstimates range from 7.7 to 2024 depending on which economist talks to you at a given point in time so to capture that back into the system and to flow it through if you're going to get private sector to invest or the banks to invest you will need them to be assured that yes the money will be paid on a monthly basis in the atmanirbhar bharat scheme uh, 90000 crores were disbursed to make sure that the distribution companies which are state owned enterprises basically pay back their long outstanding dues Uh, that's gone up to 125000 crores but the structural reforms have yet to come the tariff so you, so, so if the reforms don't come then potentially this could happen again right yes and, and bigger because you are you are after all looking at larger numbers and if you're not plugging the leak in the bucket there is a problem there also please don't forget uh, the uh, subsidy element uh, hidden and direct uh, acknowledged is uh, in the system from the real tariff is roughly a gap of a rupee and 10 paisa per unit of electricity sold in the country we are told about a figure of 35 40 45 paisa per unit loss if you factor this subsidy which is there and the cross subsidy you're talking at three times the size so there are is a need for there is no denying that the government has taken a positive step but there is a very critical issue of the center state relationship unless we are able to hark back through the vajpay era where you developed a national agenda on reform and restructuring which led to the whole uh, uh, change of the mechanism from state electricity boards to disaggregated entities the regulators arms length uh, functioning which is in question uh, unless you go that path and you are able to build utilizing the niti perhaps which is a supposed to be a think tank for reforms a national consensus and implement it irrespective of which party rules which state we will face these challenges because india will always go to elections 
and nowadays we see that even municipal elections gets uh, the government to stop in the path of reform whether it's state or center now that is a reality with 800 odd districts in the country that you will never be out of election mode so there is yeah. a need for that but this new consensus this is a very interesting issue particularly for constitutional lawyers like myself that if you're talking about a new consensus on center state relations it perhaps strikes me as a little bit idealistic perhaps it strikes you as idealistic as well for the reason that you outlined yourself which is the fact that the number of elections that have to happen and the the populist urges particularly around power that come around whenever election time happens means that even if there were a consensus in theory that consensus would unravel whenever there is an election so do you think that there is any realistic hope of some sort of new consensus emerging or has it emerged before in the power thing well i think it did vajpayee that's why i hark back to the vajpayee resolutions the chief ministers conferences organized by vajpayee 96 and 2001 are the ones that recognize clearly and the statements if you see acknowledging the losses in the sector recognizing that the need to distance create a level playing field provide for private sector participation get competent neutrality through the regulatory institution all of that came at the back of that now at that stage it was quite a serious reform Uh, there are challenges in how we have gone about implementing and particularly staffing those agencies and the capture of those agencies to uh, populist measures and the political economy so i i don't doubt or question what you say it's challenging but we are back to the wall at the end of the day you are today sitting in a situation and consider this i mean power is is something which i believe passionately about and i don't understand why this problem is not getting addressed the sector which is an input cost to the economy is a major driver of growth still has a minister of state it is contributing to around 50% of the npas of the country and yet you don't have a cabinet minister in the parliament you also have a problem in terms of the structural reforms which need to be done not getting through and therefore the need for a consensus and the consensus will have to be developed not because uh, it can't be done but because gst council did it after all the gst law came at the back of a consensus with the same government forget vajpayee government which was a time of your and the different personality but even today and he is uh, mr modi today and the current government would perhaps be counted as amongst the most uh, uh, widely uh, popular governments in terms of uh, both uh, presence in the lok sabha rajya sabha as also states so there is a need for uh, that leadership and his uh, political uh, capital to be expended towards it and some of the recent moves do suggest that he is moving on the path of economic reforms which uh, had uh, seen a dip in the uh, first phase so if that is correct given that it's 3 3 and a half years still to go for the general elections i have hope because if uh, the big uh, agenda on which uh, this government is acknowledged internationally that's your uh, renewable energy and the whole initiative on on that say, side is true and we are taking it forward some of these reforms are imperatives ultimately right. there has to be capital without capital gross formation of capital and without investments in the credible phase it'll be impossible so this government has done well in a tight situation to at least commit to the capital so i'm going to put you i'm going to put you on the spot there amit if you were the minister of state for power in 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 india uh and you had to choose a prioritization of reforms because you've named three uh, major ones you said that we need a new structural consensus like a, perhaps a gst council like body we need uh, to privatize and allow greater private participation uh, in the sector and also you said that we need to look at rationalizing our subsidy now if you had to prioritize between these three how would you go about it? honestly speaking if i had the uh, the backing of the authority 
the first thing I would love to do is to get out of the state regulators and create regional regulators. If there is one institution that's been created, which is getting captured by political economy, which was meant not to be captured by political economy, is the regulatory institution. The moment you take five states, I mean, and, and you can look at the architecture of the national electricity uh, industry. There are the regional hubs and the RPCs and RLDCs. So if you have the region defined and you have a regulator sitting across the region and you have nominees on the bench who come from each state and you have each state which has a different mix of load, uh, different sources of energy, different demands, different load curves, you have now a situation where none of them can hijack it. And that will neutralize it. Right now, our problem is it is getting completely compromised. That, you would rightly say, is utopian. It is, it is hope. But, uh, but then you asked me that if I was the minister, what would I put as the first priority? And the second I would do is to insist that the tripartite agreement which was entered into at the time of the Montague Singh Aliola bailout in 2001-2 should be extended to all. If a state defaults, because after all, if you're consuming the power, you have to pay for it. If you default in the payment, they dip into your central pool allocation and that's the end of the story. Because after all, whether it's a generating station of the center or the state, or it's private, it's a transmission line of center, state or private, they have to be paid, their employees, their costs incurred. Now you can't keep brushing it under the carpet and keep building the shortfall, which is where we are. That's right. I think that's a very concrete reform suggestion and may not be as utopian because... We have seen regional bodies in India and there could and regional bodies are perhaps a, a good way. And since India, we are just recording this today where India has won a cricket test against England. I think the zones in cricket and Ranji Trophy are a, are a good precedent as to how we can use zones in electricity regulation in India as well. But let's shift tack. You mentioned right at the outset something that strikes a chord with most listeners is that the devil really lies in the detail of implementation. Now, it's a great step that the budget is saying that they're going to make this outlay available. A large amount of it is going to be for capital expenditure on infrastructure, which is great. So a question that we've all been thinking about, Amit, particularly those who are not conversant with the intricacies of macro finance, is that while it's okay to say we are going to spend this money, where is this large amount of money going to be spent for it to be useful and create the fiscal stimulus we want to create. I think the money, it's, it's quite clearly already identified the logistics and transportation. Uh, and literally from, uh, from soup to nuts, it is from sauce to sink, has been provided for the lion's share in the budget. Uh, if you take uh, highways, roads and railways, they get the lion's share. And that is uh, significant because you know that uh, today cargo travels across the country at 12 to 14 kilometers per hour. And the kind of wastage on fuel and efficiency and productivity is incredible. I mean, it is just completely criminal. So if you can actually spend that and not spend for new projects to announce new uh, Fita Katna and, and flag bearing, but actually complete projects which are close to closure, you may have a much better solution at hand. That's one. Existing projects. Spend existing on existing projects, projects exactly. rather than announce so new grants. Just ones. announce yeah. new ones because announcing new ones will take much longer to complete. Existing projects are 80%, 90% done. You can complete in a couple of months and get going. You can start generating revenue. Your employment goes up immediately because the construction picks up and things then follow. So you can allocate a significant portion towards closure. And of course, 
strategic areas where you need uh, new projects, you can announce and go in parallel. It's not that you have to go in one or the other. Second big area where I believe uh, it is very critical for us to uh, try and spend money is that entire uh, move towards climate change and uh, that shift, because India has seen an incredible and a revolutionary change in the pricing of solar and wind, and particularly off late, the kind of solar prices that are getting discovered. Uh, even uh, I, who uh, who's reasonably steeped in the sector, uh, often pinch myself in the morning to wonder what in the hell is going on. Because from the times that you used to see 16 crores a megawatt, 18 crores a megawatt as capital cost, and then, of course, uh, 10 rupees, 15 rupees, 18 rupees a unit, you're not talking of the fact that you can have the surplus land available at substations being utilized to install solar panels, and through the solar panels backed with energy storage, you could actually supply power back to the grid after storing and not losing at 3 rupees 50, 3 rupees 70, 4 rupees, while the same Mumbai or Delhi would purchase that peaking power at the cost of 15 and 20 rupees a unit. So just imagine how many things could be done there. So that's the second area. And I think, I think that's the whole nine yards of climate change, I would say. So renewable energy and climate change is a low hanging fruit. It can get benefit in agriculture. It can get benefit in consumer and, and street lighting and all the peaking power challenges, which lead to various issues. So that's the second big area, which I would say is very, very critical. The third area, which I think is equally important and is the whole urban cluster. Because the, if you're going to get back to manufacturing and you're going to give impetus back to employment, there is a need for us to rethink how our cities and urban centers and clusters and industrial clusters have been organized. Just in terms of giving primary healthcare and a roof over the head, we do not want surely to see a repeat of the challenge we faced at the back of the lockdown where several of them felt completely disenfranchised and not taken care of. Surely every citizen deserves that protection. And this government has shown uh, whether you take the, uh, the toilet uh, scheme and the urban development schemes and the city development schemes, significant amount of focus on that. Even, even the uh, supply of uh, the uh, gas and kerosene, you know, for, for the livelihoods. But and is your challenges. suggestion that you put money in the hands of the people or you're saying that build public no, build, works? Build, build public works and, and through that also get Manrega. So both mm. in the rural and urban area, it's a twinning. Mm. You build the asset, which is going to serve the people, give them better quality of life and uh, give them more confidence in employment and employability and simultaneously get uh, them to uh, benefit from the uh, assured uh, employment and minimum guarantees. Yeah, so the overall approach, and I see where you're going with this, Amit, the overall approach seems to be that, you know, you build infrastructure and in that process, people will get larger amounts of money and it will stimulate demand. And so the economy is going to get back up again. This seems to be a change from what we were hearing in NDA 1, where there was a lot of talk, if you remember, around universal basic income about putting money directly into the hands of people in their bank accounts. Now, where do you stand on this issue on giving money directly to people vis-a-vis -vis building so that demand gets stimulated? I think the next six months to a year are challenging. So you can't run away from the fact that you need to make sure that people have minimum guaranteed employment, minimum income, and also food. So you will have to take care of both. And it's a, it's a transaction where it's, it's a classic Samuelson gun butter equation where you'll need to strike a balance. You need to take care of the citizen who has gone back to his rural or semi-urban areas is wanting to come back, 
is still feeling challenged assure him and, and and government has already taken steps for example the ability to try and draw on your pds food supply even when you are away from your hustings in the village is a very positive step similarly the bank accounts and others so i think we need to now the infrastructure exists we need to now activate and implement and and the implementation has been a challenge at times so there is a need that's why i am saying that you know i don't think any party in the country would say that just because it is party a at center i am going to oppose employment i am going to oppose investment in infrastructure i am going to oppose taking care of primary health care and and uh, other facilities that a citizen needs and that i think could be a winning combination and there if if the uh, center is able to step forward and take them along you need to carry them along without scoring brownie points beyond a point you may have a national consensus emerge but if i am going to put you down and claim everything as my own there will be resistance and unfortunately politics is a dirty game that's right as we can always hope for better more mature and wiser politicians but then i think we that's going to be the end of that conversation at least for the moment so let's discuss some matters of law because when it comes to questions of implementation and why implementation fails one of the key reasons that is always provided is because of failures in our both our legal frameworks and then our legal system so let's come to the legal judicial system a bit later let's talk about the legal framework itself to back up these reforms that that the government has done in terms of its greater spending and its emphasis on infrastructure what in your view are some of the key changes that we need to make to the law to make this reform direction a reality i think one thing which at times is escaping uh... our attention at the implementation level not at the policy level is the fact that the economy is nothing but a chain of contracts and if it is a chain or a web of contracts which are interdependent interconnected we need to ensure the enforceability of contracts and rule of law is sacrosanct we are not doing very well there as you know we are absolutely way down on the list in terms of enforceability of contracts uh, you and i worked together on that committee where the specific relief act was amended i still don't think every state has created those special courts as stand alone to function it is encouraging to see that delhi high court and supreme court has in a couple of judgments including the central resources case uh, referred to the amendment and talked about the fact that infrastructure projects need to and public projects need to be given a certain standing where we will not grant injunctions for the asking and uh, we would like the investments not to be impaired but we need to have the nuts and bolts of implementation at the district level unless at the district and the state level the special courts are created empowered and functioning so that the disputes actually come and go within a year or a year and a half this will still be pie in the sky similarly what you have mentioned in the opening with the five tribunals being folded back into this commercial division of the high courts there are a, uh, a certain reason uh, why this is being done and it was referred to in terms of the fact that these tribunals have not done too much in terms of functioning and they are not going to cast additional burden on the judiciary and in fact they have led to extra expenditure without outcomes uh, perhaps they are right but if that's correct would we like to consider filling up the vacancies and make sure that that system finally comes into place after all we are Uh, more than 70 years post independence and and some day rather than just limit the problem we need to solve it the third facet of that is also 
Why is it that uh, the French Supreme Court is able to get a Professor Frederick Jenny, an economist, to sit in and write judgments? And Richard Posner sits in, uh, in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal in the United States. But we don't engage anybody outside the hallowed pristine zone of uh, judges because specialization inherently lends to effective dispute resolution provided we staff the right specialists for the right job. I still remember uh, seeing sometime at college time uh, a book. Somebody was reading a, a ready Rekna and an easy read. And it was by so-and-so gold medalist. And under that was weight lifting. So you, you need to actually get the, get the specialist for the job rather than get somebody who can claim to be a specialist irrelevant to the job that you have at hand. And we have much of that going on. If you compare the tribunals, those tribunals who have had specialists of the field, who have worked in that sector for 40, 45 years, sitting with a judge, you have found that they are very quick to decide. They cut to the chase. And in spite of the most complex issues, including political economy, public finance, and all welfare issues, are able to come up with cogent decisions in two or three days of hearing, whilst at times in the high courts and Supreme Court, and not to forget what Justice Hegde said in the West Bengal judgment 2002, uh, they struggle with it. Because the technical aspects, the economics, the underlying public finance and policy issues are not choices for which judges are meant to and are trained for. So they need assistance. Now, whether you get expert testimony in the courts, which is another thing which we don't follow, Specific Relief Act provides for it, or you also create that tribunal structure where you can create special benches, where you can co-opt a technical or a financial expert or an economic expert on the bench along with the judges. And that experiment has worked beautifully in some segments. Why can't we do that for the country? So there is a need for us to try and step back, look at the problem and resolve it in a manner which will yield the result we want. So the mantra, Amit, seems to be specialization, specialization, specialization. That's what we need for quicker disputes and better dispute resolution. But what, now if we are to think about how we are going to get that specialization, one, of course, is we, you have tribunals where you have specialized persons appointing. Now, our record, as you have yourself alluded to, has been mixed. Where we do appoint specialists, it works quite well. But there are plenty of cases where tribunals becomes just another example of jobs for the boys, whether it's the court or the government. And so you, you end up appointing people who have no expertise. That's, so so there's, there's a set of problems there. And then you have the courts where obviously the judges are generalist, but perhaps over time, say with an idea like the commercial division, where there are judges or roster of judges who keep hearing commercial matters. And there are a couple of very successful examples, at least of commercial divisions operating in Delhi. Uh, there was a tax bench in the Supreme Court. I remember when Justice Sikri was presiding um, and Justice Nariman, they were excellent. As in we could see that they were, they were really get on top of their game and people were happy whether they won or lost. Yeah. So, so it, specialization could potentially happen through tribunals. It could potentially happen through courts. Where do you think uh, the, the potential success of specialization might lie? As in where do you think it might happen more easily? I, I think specialization should be brought in judiciary itself. There is no reason for us to keep chopping and throwing judges from one portfolio to the other or one roster to the other every three months. I mean, what's the point of getting a, a, a lawyer with a good standing, having spent all his life on criminal law and put him on the company law tribunal uh, the, the moment he comes on the bench? And by the time the judge is getting to the grips of the jurisprudence in that field in three or six months, 
you shift him to the family court, then you shift him to civil side, then you throw him on the appellate side. And therefore, the body of knowledge which can be given continuity is lost. Why is it that it is not possible for us to consider that after five years on the bench, in a consultation between the collegium of the high court and the judges on the bench, on preference or options given by the judge, we have three or four or five divisions. You have a civil division, you have a commercial division, you have a criminal division, perhaps you have an international and technological division, and, and you just keep with that. Because the challenges in each of those are wide enough to give interesting, exciting areas of work. You don't get ossified with one law all the time for next, next 20, 25 years. But you develop an insight, a perspective, which will help carry forward the jurisprudence and find solutions. I mean, after all, these are not God-given mechanisms. These mechanisms have been created by man. And if, if the human society has created them, then men and women who sit on the benches can certainly be asked which area interests you and which area would you like to specialize, give your one, two, three. And depending on where you stand in terms of your performance, you are selected for that and you evolve into it. Area. You will find far more intensive uh, results in terms of output from the judges. And the two that you mentioned were crack commercial lawyers in their practice besides constitutional lawyers. So when they went to the Supreme Court and they picked up rosters like arbitration or IBC or commercial contracts, or for that matter, tax, they took like fish to water. Now, if you put somebody who's all his life worked on service law or all his life on criminal, it'll be unfair on the gentleman or the lady. And you are going to uh, get uh, subst uh, substandard outcomes, not because of a fault of the person, but the institution not providing for it. So why don't we do that, one? Secondly, consider what UK has done, where each sitting judge of the high court is ex-officio member of the upper tribunal. Now, if that's correct, and that's how it is, then why can't you staff them on a rotation basis to go into a tribunal like that, spend three years, sit with a technical member or a financial member, acquire that knowledge as well and come back? It gives both sides a much better understanding and insight because ultimately we are trying to solve in courts and tribunals problems of the real world. We are not finding solution on interpretation of pure jurisprudence, then going to apply it on technical issues, then try and see whether it's financially viable we'll spend our lifetime on it. You need to find a complete solution and quickly, because unlike the West, India's time value of money, even at the depressed interest rates today, is very high. So if you delay uh, this dispute by four years at 10 to 12% per annum interest on compounding, you have already written off half the value of the project. And that's a problem. That's right. So I think that's another very concrete suggestion you've made, Amit, that we need to think about specialized divisions in courts, which will allow judges to grow into particular areas of expertise that will allow for quicker resolution and complete solutions to problems. So we've had two very concrete solutions, one for the judiciary that you've offered about specialized divisions in high courts, and one for government, center and state, to try and think about and evolve regional councils in electricity. Since we are almost out of time, I'll leave you with the last word is there any other solution that you'd like to offer to the parliament, the one wing of government that perhaps you haven't offered one to? Well, I think, uh, I think we need to galvanize the standing committees uh, into more effective instruments because the way legislation and rulemaking is going, at times it leads, uh, leaves much to uh, be desired, particularly in terms of stakeholder consultation, which is not because of the making of any, any one party participating in it but just because of the way it has been. 
and if you are able to give them a fresh lease of life particularly also getting a standing committee on uh, tribunals for that matter it may just give us a fresh impetus and uh, i think the last point at the government and the parliamentary level why can't we think of consolidating ministries across value chain why can't there be a ministry of infrastructure at the cabinet level under which you cover transportation energy aviation ports and fuel why can't you similarly have five or six such cabinet ranks who are super uh, ministers and then under them you have individual ministries running their respective areas because there are going to be inherent conflicts but there is a complete value chain which is back to back to each other and the the loss that we have in the transaction of these being isolated uh, silos is there for us to see in the climate change reality in the way we have gone about implementing for example the fgd to save the environment from the coal we went and notified the fgd requirements of emission but obviously the consultation between the ministry of environment and the ministry of power and the ca was not there and while it was to be implemented by 2017 in 2021 today we are wondering by when will it start Right. because the epc capacity in the country is not existing the technology is not being stabilized normative costs are still being figured out so there is a need for us to start cutting the silos out address the value chain keeping article 39 in focus welfare for the citizen must be the driving mantra for the government on governance i would end with that i think that's a good note to end on and that i think the overall message that we are taking away from this is that the budget is certainly a step in the right direction with its promises of infrastructure but it needs to be backed up by serious structural reform no matter how intimidating it sounds it ultimately is for the welfare of the citizen so thank you very much amit for that freewheeling chat it was a real pleasure to have you and hope to have you soon on justify again my thank pleasure argo thank you so much for this Time for clatter our legal quiz that's a bit tougher than clat last times was an audio clip and it was a very famous song all you had to do was identify the singer the answer unsurprisingly was bob dylan bob dylan influenced greatly by baul music Uh, the winner is madhur bhat madhur you've got a gift voucher coming your way congratulations and do keep playing this week's clatter question true to the budget is on the budget traditionally finance ministers in india have carried the union budget in a red black or brown leather briefcase this tradition was broken a couple of years ago who was the finance minister who was responsible for establishing this tradition and precisely how and by whom was this tradition broken do send in your answers to justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in all right answers stand a chance to win a 1000 rupee gift voucher that's it for us today but as always we end with a song and this time since it's also madhubala's birth anniversary we are ending it with an epic an epic that talks about money no matter how small it may be 5 rupaya barana and not the crores that we are talking about in this budget adjourn
खजाना तुम हो मेरी जा ये माना लेकिन पहले दे दो मेरा पाँच रुपया बारा आना पाँच रुपया बारा आना मारेगा भैया नाना नाना If you enjoyed listening to this podcast follow us on Twitter at vidhi_india for regular updates we are on SoundCloud and Spotify as vidhi center for legal policies podcast you can also listen to us on Google podcasts or iTunes email us at justify@vidhilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode